Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church. Father, thank you for giving us something to believe in. Thank you for Jesus, the one who is our hope and our help, the one who is our life and our hope in, even as we head towards death, the one who gives us forgiveness of sins, the one who brings to us life at the fullest, life in its abundance. Father, we welcome that. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that we have something we can build our lives on, this truth foundational truth that you love the world so much that you gave your one your only son that anyone who would believe would have life eternal with you father thank you for that life thank you for your son it's in his name we worship you it's in his name we now hear from you amen you can be seated well once again let me welcome you to faith christian glad that you are here with us this morning I want to just mention a couple things kind of by way of announcement before we dig in this morning. Uh, this is especially for those of you who are um, parents of middle school or high school students. Uh, our student minister, Noah, has scheduled a parent meeting. would love to meet with you parents next Sunday right after our 1030 service uh, downstairs in our, in our student area. Uh, uh, so parents, if you kind of just kind of put that on your calendar and plan, if you've got a middle school, 6th grader through a 12th grader, he would love to meet with you, just kind of begin some uh, avenues of communication as he's beginning his ministry and his time with us uh, here at Faith Christian. So parents, make that, uh, just note that and be here next week and plan to stick around for 10 or 15 minutes and let Noah get to know you a little bit and begin those lines of communication. He's got to kind of map out what's, what all's happening in our student ministry uh, this winter, this spring, and even some of the summer activities he's already got planned. So uh, you'll want to hear from him there. Speaking of our faith student ministries, uh, our Sunday night group, uh, our youth group for middle school and high school students, that reconvenes for the new year next Sunday on January 16th. So I hope that uh, if you've got a middle school or high schooler in your life, you'll have him here next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock for uh, that time of youth group. Well, this morning we're kicking off a brand new sermon series, so you picked a great week to be here today. We're beginning a new teaching series that we're going to be journeying through here in the, the winter months uh, of 2022, and I'm calling this series Questioning Jesus. Uh, there's something in all of us, something a, a little bit innate, innate in all of us that kind of gets a little gruff when someone has authority over us, whether it's a parent when we're growing up or a teacher at school or, or a boss Whoever it is, when someone, we find ourselves under someone else's authority, there, there's a part of us that begins to question their authority, to question what they're saying, to, to wonder if they're doing it right, to wonder if we could do it better, frankly. And so we begin to, to wonder, just a natural part of us that, that pushes back a little bit against authority. And that's kind of what we're going to look at this winter as we journey through together the, the first part of the New Testament book of Mark. That's where we're going to be these eight weeks together, is journeying through the first half of Mark's gospel. There are four gospels, we call them the gospels, also call, I, I like to refer to them also as the biographies of Jesus. The first part of our New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four guys give us their introduction to Jesus, their bi version of the biography of Jesus. And one of the ones that I just frankly have never studied a lot in my own life is the gospel of Mark. And so this past fall, I started, I, I had that kind of realization. I started reading and studying the book of Mark and I'm fascinated 
by some of the stuff that happens in Mark that Matthew and Luke and John don't necessarily record for us. Some they do, just different perspectives on stuff. And so as I began, grew more and more fascinated with Mark, I thought, well, we, we've, got to, we've got to go through this together as, as a church, as a church family. So that's what we're going to do this, these first eight weeks of the new year together. And we're going to journey through the first half of the book of Mark together. And as we do so over the next several weeks, I'm going to ask you to pay very special attention as we make this journey together. I want you to pay attention that we're going to see that from Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, to, to, to people who were just kind of enthralled by him, this crowd that was around him, to Jesus' loudest critics, the people who were just criticizing everything that Jesus did, to, to Jesus' fiercest opposition, which from that time, in that moment were the religious leaders, from the full spectrum of the people who encountered Jesus, there were all kinds of people who were questioning Jesus, who were challenging Jesus, who were, I'm going to use this word a lot of times, who were second-guessing Jesus. And I believe as we journey through the, the, the first part of the book of Mark together this winter, as we look at these encounters that Mark records for us, where people are, are questioning Jesus, I believe it will be very helpful to people like you and like me who have different questions about Jesus or about the ways of Jesus. Let, let me say it like this. We may not always doubt if God exists, but I think that we often wonder, is he right? Is he right? So in this series, what we're going to see is that even from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, people had those kind of questions, the same kind of questions you and I still have today. So let's jump in. Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you if you want to read along with me. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there. Let me just uh, read, kind of, this is day one of Jesus' ministry. I'm going to jump in at verse 21. We're going to read a few of these verses. I'll paraphrase a few others as we walk through this, the first part of chapter 1. So chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, beginning of verse 21. Here, here's what Mark writes. Jesus and his companions, this is the disciples, or some of them at the, anyway at this point, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. And then the next couple of verses, what happens in the next couple of verses, is right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, a man who was possessed by a demon walks into the synagogue and interrupts the sermon. I get distracted when babies cry. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do if somebody with demon-possessed walked in right in the middle of a sermon. And so the crowd, uh, so this, this demon-possessed person, Jesus frees the man of the demon, heals the man, sets the demon free. And so the crowd now is not only amazed at what they've heard Jesus saying, amazed at his teaching, they're now also amazed that Jesus seems to have this, this unbelievable spiritual authority. And it's been on display as he's cast the demon out of this man. Verse 28. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. So from one synagogue service, now the whole region is beginning to get this buzz about it, about the name of Jesus. Everyone's beginning to hear the name Jesus. Jesus, can I say it like this in modern terms? Jesus is going viral. And this is day one. This is the first day of Jesus' public ministry. Actually, it's the first half day. We're only into the afternoon so far. This is the first half day of Jesus' public ministry, and he has already gone viral. And there's a buzz about him across the whole region. 
So that evening, same day, that evening, Jesus is now at the home of one of his disciples, Simon. And he is still teaching. And he is beginning to heal people because people are hearing what's happened. They're beginning to bring their sick friends to Jesus. Look what happens in verse 32. That evening, after sunset, again, day one, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. Again, day one. Now we have an entire city gathered at the doorstep of this house where Jesus is staying just to see him teach, just to watch him perform these miracles. There's this mass of people coming to, coming from all over. Day one, Jesus has gone viral. So, after his opening day of ministry, a day of great success, a day of great popularity, how does Jesus bounce back? He's been working well into the night. What do you do for an encore on day two? Verse 35. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, Dude, everybody's looking for you. Where are you? Everybody's looking for you. But Jesus replied, We must go on to the other towns as well, and I will preach to them, to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, casting out demons. Let's reset the scene. Jesus has had his opening day of public ministry, day number one, and he is an instant success. The whole region is hearing his name. There's a buzz about the name of Jesus. The whole city is gathered around to watch and see what's going on. So imagine this from the disciples' perspective. They have just started following Jesus, like just days before. And now, already, day one, his ministry has exploded. They've seen his ministry explode in success and interest. There's a buzz about it in only one afternoon. They wake up the next day. What are we going to do today? And there's no Jesus. He's nowhere to be found. Maybe, maybe they didn't panic at first, but all of a sudden, people are starting to show back up at the house because they want to hear the rabbi teach. They want to they see their friend get healed. They're looking for the rabbi. They're asking questions, and these guys, they don't have any answers. And it's not just one or two people. It's people from all around who are showing back up. You can imagine these, these different families showing up. They've brought someone that they love who is sick, who is injured, who is disabled. And they are looking for a healer who can supposedly do these amazing things. And they're asking questions. They're wondering where Jesus is. Is Jesus really as good as we've heard? And so now the disciples, all of a sudden, they're panicking, and they head out trying to figure out, where is Jesus? Where has he gone? They track him down. They give him this little update about what's going on in the crowd. I think we can safely assume, assume from the, 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 some of the hints in the original language that Mark uses, Greek, I think we can safely assume that when they went and found Jesus, they had an expectation that Jesus was going to come back with them and go back and be with the crowds, to go back and be the celebrity, to go back and be popular. He's a success. He's hot. He's gone viral. Don't stop now, Jesus. The iron's hot. We've got to strike now. Mark is cluing us in, with, 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 again, with the language, that what the disciples are doing here when they go to find Jesus, they are going 
to scold Jesus. They are looking for Jesus with their fingers wagging. They're going to scold Jesus for not being with the crowd. They're going to they're, they're going to fuss at Jesus for not being where where he should have been, or at least where they thought he should have been. So do you catch that there's kind of this tension in this moment? Jesus' ministry, it's a startup. This is day one. And for any startup, any new venture, the ventures that are going to last, the projects, the teams that are going to stay together are those teams that have great clarity about who they are and what they're going to prioritize. So here in Mark 1, we have the question, who gets to decide Jesus' priorities? What is Jesus' ministry going to be shaped up? And the question, the pushback, the second guessing these disciples are doing is, hey, the, the crowd is clamoring for you, man. Let's go. Come on, we, we got to do something. The question that Jesus is facing in this moment, to put it broadly, it's between the issue of divine direction or crowd reaction. What's going to be the priority? What's going to be the driving force for the next three years of Jesus' ministry? Is it going to be what the crowd wants, or is it going to be the, the divine direction? And Jesus has stepped away from, even his closest followers, stepped away from the crowd to get to an isolated place to seek divine direction for what he's supposed to do with his ministry. And the disciples, again, here's the tension, the disciples show up giving, them, giving him all these updates about all the crowds, and he should be back there. Let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes for just a second. What was so attractive? What was so engaging about the crowd's reaction? Now, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating for a minute. I got a couple of theories. Maybe, maybe, maybe after seeing one day of incredible interest and success, maybe the disciples are thinking, hey, you know, we could, we could corner the market on faith healing in Capernaum. And we could, we could charge a couple of denarii for access to Jesus. We could get some cash flow going here, and we could really get this ministry off the ground because we'd have some cash. Maybe. M maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe, another theory, maybe is that they really believe that Jesus could be the Messiah. Now, that's an important title for a Jewish person in the first century, the Messiah. There's all these prophecies in the Old Testament that they've read all their lives about a Messiah, an, an anointed one who is going to one day come and redeem Israel, to deliver Israel. And in Jesus' day, Israel was under Roman occupation. They weren't even in charge of themselves, the Jewish people weren't. They needed an anointed one. They needed a hero. They needed a savior. They needed a Messiah. So maybe... Maybe the disciples in this moment are thinking, okay, the best way to get the Messiah some energy, some popularity, is to get some forces around him to, to make sure that the crowd sticks around. So we want to keep the crowd happy so the crowd sticks around because we're going to need some backup. When we head to Jerusalem and then later we head to Rome to, to free our people, we're going to need some reinforcements. We're going to need some manpower. We're going to need some, some troops. And so maybe if we keep the crowd happy, we'll have those resources. Maybe. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe, a third theory I came up with, maybe, maybe they were just overwhelmed. All of a sudden, there's, there's this group of people knocking on the door, and they're desperate for someone who helped them. And they're broken, and their lives are, are dysfunctional, and they need hope, and they need help, and they've seen Jesus provide this. Maybe they're just 
Maybe they're just overwhelmed that they couldn't help these people, but they knew Jesus could. Maybe. Whatever the case, whatever the reason is, this point remains. Just a few days before this, every one of these disciples had agreed to follow Jesus. They'd left careers. They'd left their homes to follow Jesus. And now, just a couple of days later, now they are all trying to tell Jesus what to do. Does that sound familiar to you? I know it does to me. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus very long to all of a sudden start going, hey, hey, hey God, I think there's a better way to do this. I don't know what, I, I don't think you're paying attention to what's going on here. I, I, God, I, I think there's a better way to do this. It doesn't take long to look at what Jesus is doing in your life. And this, this is true whether you've been a Christian for like 10 minutes or like 40 years. You, you, you start looking at the way God is letting things play out in your world and you go, uh, hey God, can, can we do something about this? Because the way you're doing it isn't working for me. Here's the deal. There are two things that can be true at the same time. Let, let me show you these two things. One, the truth number one is life is better with Jesus. I've, I've said that maybe a thousand times from this platform. Life is better as we follow Jesus. It's a better way to live. Life is better with Jesus. That is true. We can hold on to that truth. But this truth is also true at the exact same time. Jesus does not always do things my way. As a matter of fact, most of the time, Jesus doesn't do things my way. And even more than that, he seldom even gives me a vote on the, on the issue. Following Jesus means that we, that we live in this tension. This tension between really believing that life is better with Jesus and also going, yeah, but why isn't he doing it my way? Why isn't he doing it the way I would do it? Well, we're in pretty good company with these disciples. We'll see a few times in this series, in this first half of the book of Mark, and if you read through the book of Mark, and I would encourage you to, to read through the book of Mark a couple times this winter as we journey through this together, you will see that some of Jesus' closest followers, some of the people who knew him the best, had the most intimate knowledge of what he was trying to do, these people were the quickest to play armchair quarterback with Jesus. And in Mark 1, it's all based on how the crowd reacts. I, I think it's fair to say that if, if the crowd reaction, the response in Capernaum had been sparse, if Jesus had taught in the synagogue and you know, like only two or three people stuck around and milled in and out and no one followed them to Simon's house that night, I, I don't think the disciples would have been saying, hey, we've got, we got to come back and listen to the, we've got to stay here. They'd have been like, hey, we've got to get some traction. Let's try the next town, see if we have better luck there. But because the crowd reacted the way they did, because Jesus went viral, because there was this buzz about it, because there was such a huge interest, they're saying, hey, we need to do what the crowd wants. Give them what they want. Keep them interested. Hold their attention. And as much as I would like to separate myself from these disciples who were so quickly swayed and tempted by the crowd's attention, I think we need to be honest that we're susceptible to the influence of the crowds too. We look to others to decide how we're going to act. We look to others to decide how we're going to react. There's a great little book called Disappearing Church from Cultural Relevance to Gospel Resilience, written by this pastor and author by the name of Mark Sayers. In Mark Sayers, in this book, 
uh, just brilliant little book, tells this wonderful story. I'm just going to read this to you because he can say it better than I could ever try to translate it for you. So let me just, just listen for a couple of minutes while I read this story that Mark Sayers tells in this book. He, he pre- prefaces the story with this line. Nothing erodes courage like a crowd. Here's the story. Sayers writes, One Christmas Eve, I was making some last-minute purchases at a packed store when a fire alarm began to sound. No one vacated the building. Instead, we, we all exchanged glances, noticing that no one else was moving, so we continued on with our shopping. Next came an announcement over the sirens that we should leave by the exits. Again, no one left the store. A powerful feedback loop was in operation until it was broken by an individual going against the crowd heading for the exits. We were stuck. Listen to this line. The crowd was the ultimate authority. The situation then became even more surreal as smoke began to move across the ceiling. Still, no one moved. The power of the crowd stayed strong. Finally, staff from the store had to herd us out of the building. A small fire had broken out in a kitchen, which was easily dealt with by the fire brigade. As I drove home, I love this line. As I drove home, I reflected on how stupid I was to not leave the building when the first fire alarm sounded and just how powerful the effect of the crowd is upon us. He goes on. In our age of social media and networking, the crowd is even more powerful. Like the feedback loop created in the store that day, we look to each other for opinion and reinforcement. The great irony of our age of radical individuals is that we become more enslaved by the collective. He wraps it up with this line. Today's society represents a shift from the vertical authority of God to the horizontal authority of the crowd. And in today's world, more than we might want to admit, we care what everybody else thinks. I'll admit it. There are TV shows that I have watched just because I heard someone say they were good. The crowd had its say. There are products that I have purchased because of how that product was marketed directly to me and like a million other people who are completely unique, just like me. (laughs) I have made choices because they were trending with the crowd. And eventually, eventually the crowd will influence how I see the world. Eventually, the crowd will influence what we value. Eventually, the crowd will influence what we think is important. Maybe even more importantly, 
eventually. The crowd will determine who we think is worth caring about. The crowd's voice can get awfully loud, especially when the crowd is always accessible in our pockets, social media and cable news. But here's the thing about the crowd. It'll change awful fast. If you read through the biographies of Jesus, you'll see that Jesus gets in front of crowds a whole bunch of times. But depending on which moment you turn to in Scripture, you're going to see a different reaction from the crowd. In Mark 1 that we read a minute ago, the crowd's reaction, they're all excited about Jesus. He's viral. There's a buzz. They can't wait to get, get in front of Jesus. But you start looking at some of the rest of Jesus' ministry, you'll see sometimes the crowd is skeptical. You'll see sometimes the crowd wants to, to force Jesus to be their political leader. You'll see sometimes the crowd is, is offended by what Jesus says, and so they leave in droves because they're so offended by what Jesus had to say. Sometimes the crowd cheers for Jesus because he's entering Jerusalem and they think he might actually be the Messiah. But then just a few days later, the same crowd is, is crying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knew this truth well. If the crowd is your consistent reference point, you will lose all consistency. Instead, Jesus chooses and leans into a constant voice, a voice that is unchanging. So when the disciples come and they find Jesus and they say, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Come on, everyone's looking for you. Jesus essentially responds by saying, I've heard from the only voice that really matters. The disciples come and they bring all these pressures and all this stress, all the anxieties of the crowd, and Jesus answers them with the peace that comes from his Father's voice. So I, I guess we should at least mention very quickly, we should just at least mention that when the disciples found Jesus, what was he doing? That They found Jesus off by himself praying. The disciples come to find him and they catch Jesus in the act of prayer. Pastor Ralph Castillo asked this question. If our friends came looking for us, would they ever catch us praying? <laughs> That's a sermon for a whole other day. We don't have time to get into that. But let me point this out to you quickly. As you read through the Gospel of Mark, again, I hope you'll do this with me this winter, there are only three moments, three times in this whole God, in these like 16 chapters, three moments that Mark records for us a picture of Jesus praying. The other biographies of Jesus, they're all over the place. But Mark, it's only, only, uh, Mark only shows it to us three times, and I think they're placed very strategically in, in Mark's gospel. The first time is right here in Mark chapter 1, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the, at the beginning. The second time is right in the middle of the book, in chapter 6, right a, after another hard, long day of, of ministry that Jesus is doing, a pivotal day of Jesus' ministry, that we see a picture of Jesus praying. The third time is at the end of the book, and it's the night before Jesus goes to the cross, and he's praying in the garden. From the beginning, the middle, and the end of Jesus' ministry, Mark is showing us Jesus going to God in prayer. I think those, that, that strategy would work pretty well for you and me as we begin this new year together. And so maybe for some of us, we need to start praying this simple prayer. God, make prayer my first response and my last resort. Make prayer my first response and my last resort. That from the beginning, I would go to you in prayer. That in the daily rhythm of life, in the middle of just normal life, I would go to you in prayer. And in those moments where all hope seems lost, I would go to you in prayer. 
You see, prayer is a, a daily invitation, a daily opportunity for you and me to recenter our lives on who I am or who God says I am. Prayer, through prayer, God realigns me with his will. Through prayer, God reaffirms to me that I am his child and that I am loved. Because the crowd will come and go. Some days the crowd will love me, some days the crowd won't. The crowd, the crowd's approval is fickle. It changes. The crowd's reaction will send you left and right, scrambling all over the place. But in that moment of prayer, there's only one voice. The voice of the one that matters. There's only Jesus. Let me pray for you. And as I pray, I'm going to ask those who are serving our communion this morning, go ahead and take your places and get ready to serve us. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for how you love us. Thank you for how patient you are with us. God, even when we're, we're so quick to tell you how we think you should run the universe, thank you for being patient with us. God, thank you for inviting us to still bring to you, to, to bring our cares and, and our concerns, our, our frustrations, our, our hopes, our fears, to bring them before you in prayer. Thank you for allowing us access to you through Jesus. Thank you for, for promising to meet with us, to, to be present with us, to, to never leave us and never forsake us. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit so that we can hear your voice, the only voice that matters. We can hear your voice above all the noise of the crowd. We love you. Lead us and guide us in your name.